Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in European Studies. I'm Liz Spragans, a host of the channel and assistant professor of Spanish at College of the Holy Cross. Today, we'll be talking to Emily Colbert Cairns about her new book, Esther in Early Modern Iberia and the Sephardic Diaspora, Queen of the Conversas, published with Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Emily is Assistant Professor of Spanish at the Department of Modern and Classical Languages at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island, and her research focuses on marginalized groups in the early modern Atlantic world, approximately 1500 to 1700, with a focus on literature, historical records, and the visual arts. She has published on Converso and Crypto-Jewish Identity in the Early Modern Period in E. Humanista, Chasky, Cervantes Journal, and Hispanophila. Emily Colbert-Cairns, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to have you. Emily, I wonder if you could begin by the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I graduated with... Um, a double major in Spanish and math from Hamilton College. in um, And then I did my PhD and master's at the University of California, Irvine. Um, and it was there that um, I knew I was interested in Jewish populations and um, women, but my interest in the medieval and early modern came about um, with my advisor, Michelle Hamilton, at the University of Minnesota now, um, and she really introduced me to texts um, about thriving populations in Al-Andalus and ideas of tolerance and convivencia, and um, my interest from undergrad in Jewish populations in Latin America kind of morphed to a transatlantic interest um, and just and moved earlier when I saw all the literature that was out there and the difference in populations um, at that time. Um, Great. That's such an interesting journey. I feel like uh, so many American scholars, particularly that work in this area, have have followed a similar path of getting kind of sucked down the rabbit hole of of multicultural Iberia. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write Esther in Early Modern Iberia and the Sephardic Diaspora? Yeah, sure. So my dissertation was on um, Jews in the early modern world, and I worked on um, a bunch of different texts, um, things like Celestina, which is a classic in medieval literature, um, and other things. And I was really looking to make that my big project, but um, it it really didn't lend itself. My dissertation was kind of disparate. And then the more I worked um, on my topic, the more Esther kind of came out as this connecting tissue between different texts. Um, And the title of my book, Queen of the Converses, Esther, for um, for those who aren't as familiar, she's the queen of the story of Purim from the Bible. And it's kind of a lesser story, but for Jews, it's really important. Um, she's the only one who has her own book. And she's the story of this underdog, this this woman who kind of wins a beauty contest, goes in front of the, um, the Persian royalty and becomes queen when the king um, kicks out his first wife for disobedience. And she doesn't reveal her Jewish identity. She's kind of 
um, taught not to and does in a crucial moment when the king under his advisor's advice is about to kill the whole Jewish population. So she's really this crucial heroine for um, Jewish people, for Jewish women, and she really resonates with the conversal populations. So I was at this time, one of the big parts of my dissertation that I really was interested in were the trials of the Carvajal sisters, Isabel and Leonor, and their brother, Luis de Carvajal, is a really important figure who's written his own autobiography, and people talk about him a lot. And I was interested in these two women, and I got to work with their manuscripts. They're in the UC Berkeley Special Collections in the Bancroft Library. And so I got to work with those, and that was something that just kept sticking out to me. And they talked about Esther in their, in their documents. And I said, what else is out there? And there's a bunch of different things that I found. So the book kind of came from that place. And then I explored all the different Esther retellings um, from that same period. So 16th and 17th centuries. That's really fascinating. Um, could you give us a sense of who are all of these different Esthers that you're describing in this project? Yeah. So the my my project looks... Um, at both a Christian perspective and a Jewish perspective, because what I found was there were retellings both written by really prominent Christian figures and within really Christian forms like the Auto Sacramental, which is a one act play um, about religious topics only found in Spain. And those, and then I also found, um, Text written by Jews, converso Jews who returned to Judaism, to openly practicing Judaism in the diaspora, like in Amsterdam, which is the case of um, Juan Pinto Delgado in a later chapter. And so I was, like, I was looking at these things and saying, how is it that this is a text that resonates with both sides? And conversos kind of straddled that boundary because they were living publicly as Christians and privately as Jews. Um, not all, but crypto-Jews, so the distinction is crypto-Jews were living publicly as one thing, privately as something else. And so, I, I, you know, that to me is like, okay, this is a figure that resonates with both sides of these, this identity and then with different populations. So how does that manifest and what are the differences in these texts? And so the book looks at, through a gendered perspective, these, um, these, these nine different retellings from both sides. Um. Maybe you could give us a bit of uh, background history on, you know, what you explained a little bit what a converso is and what a crypto Jew is. But but what's the history on the Iberian Peninsula of that? Um, this seems like it's a really fundamental part of, of your project that at least leads into the 16th century, even if the history starts back in the 14th century. Sure, definitely. Um, so 1391 is this watershed moment, the first mass conversions um, and attacks on the Jewish population. Um, and there's, for the first time living in Iberia, we have, um, within the same families, we'll have converted Jews or conversos, we'll have, um, and, and we'll have, within those crypto-Jews, the ones who continue practicing Judaism, we'll have kind of... Um, conversos who are very faithful to their new religion and these are divided on family lines and they separated families and we'll still have Jews and Christians um, and they were all living together. 1492 is the moment when Judaism is officially kicked out from the peninsula. Jews are in exile. Anyone who's remained has to um, convert and we lose those normative Jews on the peninsula. What then happens is we get the creation of new and old Christians, as that's an emerging, the conversos being new Christians and old Christians can trace their families back um, on all sides to Christian grandparents. Um, so the history there is is quite important. And we're looking um, by, the t by the 17th century, um, there are still conversos on the peninsula, but the the practices that they have over the centuries have um, of, that connect them to their original Jewish identity. Um, I don't want to say less have lessened, but they've been mixed a lot. And so when we have a case like Juan Pinto Delgado, uh, um, 
yeah, Juan Pinto Delgado, in, who returns to normative practicing Judaism in Amsterdam, his version of what Judaism is, um, is very different. Um, and so, yeah, so we're um, looking at, so w- when I talk about the Carvajal sisters, they are conversas who are crypto-Jews um, in 1595 in, in the Americas, actually, in New Spain which is today Mexico. Fascinating. Um, so what, what was it, just to, to start at that kind of prehistory, what was it that happened in, in 1391 uh, that led to this watershed moment? So what was going on in, on the Iberian Peninsula that led to this creation of all of these new categories of converso, new Christian, old Christian? Sure, there was a tax on the Jewish populations and the first mass pogroms um, 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 in southern, and they started in southern Spain. And they, you know, would bring, they would invoke kind of mass conversions upon those practicing Jews. Um, And and that's what started. I, I don't know if I should say the beginning of the end, but it's the beginning of um, where we see these mixed identities living along the Iberian Peninsula together. Great. So um, could you maybe talk a little bit about, so you're, you're using these nine texts as your archive that you're departing from. Could you tell us a little bit about how you arrived at these nine texts? So you've said that you initially noticed Esther as being this important figure in the Carvajal documents in, in the Bancroft at, at Berkeley. Um, how did you come across the, the next eight? Sure. Um, just, I just, um, I just occur- wanted to add something to the last question. If I can go out of order a little bit, yeah, there was, um, there was a, a, an important priest, Vincente Ferrer, that kind of waged this campaign against the Jewish population. And, um, wrote treatises against them, and that's what sparked those events that we were just talking about with the first mass conversions. Um, and then going forward to your question, um, so I had these, um, I was interested in what was going around these Carvajal women and the Inquisition, what was happening around um, that they were experiencing. Um, and so I looked to see, um, I just did a, um, a wide search to see what are other texts written about Esther. I assume there were more. There was um, contemporary Bibles that were circulated by the Conversa population, and the Carvajals most likely had access to them, the Ferrara Sedur, um, the Biblia Latinada, and these were contemporary texts um, that um, – they had access, well, the Carvajal women had access to it particularly because their families were, um, very deeply involved in a transatlantic trade with, um, within Africa and Northern Europe and the New World. Um, and so I just said, okay, to myself, there has to be others. And there, there were within the Sephardic population. There was Juan Pinto Delgado's in Amsterdam, his poema de la Reina Esther. Um, within Spain, there was Autos Sacramentales, and I got to take a great trip to um, the Biblioteca Nacional to look at those, um, the Autos Sacramentales. Um, and then um, really exciting to me were these tapestries that are in Zaragoza, and um these are visual celebrations of the story of Queen Esther. It's a whole three series tapestry, huge, beautifully adorned in detail. Um, and these are a little bit later than the Carvajal women, but this is also celebrating this story. And so, um, and I recommend anyone going to visit them. They're at the um, Museo de la Seo in Zaragoza, and it's amazing to see them in person because they're huge. Um, and these were tapestries that were taken out and set every year during the Holy Week and put on the walls, the exterior walls of the church within the central plaza. And if anyone's been to Saragossa, it's, it's a big plaza. And so these were kind of living documents that up until a couple hundred years ago, they were taken out every year. And so they're still telling the story and celebrating this history. And I said, what, you know, how does that come to be? Um, 
And then there was also um, Felipe Godinez's texts, um, um, his plays, theatrical representations about the story of Queen Esther that he wrote on either side of his Inquisition trial, which I found really interesting. How does this change? What are the differences? And he wrote in um, in a sim. He's he's what he's somewhat well known, but not very well known. Um, but he wrote in the same style as Lope de Vega, who's a really important Spanish playwright. And and so these kind of connections emerged. Um, and I said, there's a conversation happening here. They were contemporaries. It stands to reason that Godinez would have read Lopez's version. Um, and so it was pretty, um, it emerged pretty quickly once I, you know, took hold of this figure. So it sounds like you've got this really, really diverse collection of texts that you're working with. Um, you've got poetry, you've got visual texts, you've got drama. How are you um, theorizing the connections among these? You know, I, clearly there's this sort of uniting uh, figure of Esther, but um, what are what are some of the ideas that you feel like these these wide variety of texts are all speaking with? Yeah, that's um, definitely. So I look at them all through a gendered perspective and how what is the female body telling us about this period that other um, other figures are not able to communicate. And um, so within the crypto-Jewish population, um, I, I argue that crypto-Judaism is a matriarchal religion because the patriarchy was absent, usually due to business and travel and transatlantic trade. But the women within both the Iberian Peninsula and the New World emerged as the stable matriarchy. And so this and they upheld and so the fact that Esther became their heroine and their queen, um, and they had other models, contemporary models within the Christian society, Isabella Catolica, um, the Virgin Mary, and they and she became heightened for them because of that. And so this gendered perspective and the idea of difference and otherness, um, it became is the kind of the connecting tissue between all of these texts. And then I guess one final question before we move on to um, some of the content of the book. How do you feel like your project is in conversation with um, some of the broader trends of scholarship on on the medieval and early modern Sephardic studies within within our field? Yeah. So one of the main um, one of the main um, aspects that emerged for me was the idea, and this is one of my conclusions, was that the Sephardic, Sephardic identity exists beyond geographical boundaries, and the Sephardic identity of this period contests the idea of national borders and the idea that they have double and multiple loyalty, these figures. And um, there's been a lot of really interesting um, texts, um, scholarship recently about um, I'm thinking of David Wax and Jonathan Israel and their um, kind of double identity. I think David Wax calls it a um, double identity. Um, and I thought about that a lot in my work because um, these conversal Jews have a double loyalty both to Spain and to Israel. And so there's this kind of dual notion of homeland that's really prevalent. Um, so on that front um, – and then just thinking about these transatlantic, we're, we talk a lot in terms of transatlantic identities today in our field, which I find really interesting. And so these are figures that are inherently transatlantic and global. Um, and I think we're trying to kind of undo some of the older boundaries of we're talking about Spanish works within the Iberian Peninsula. And we're looking at trends that go beyond national boundaries. And these are figures that are also inherently um border transgressors um, and they have connections to medieval French literature and to, you know, um, we're, we're kind of we're moving around the globe in a period where I think it was really prevalent, but we don't necessarily think of it today in, ter in those terms. Yeah. I mean, it seems like such a, a rich way of exploring how Spanish identity was was emerging in this period, because precisely the moment that 
that crypto Judaism and, and conversos become sort of a problem for, for the Spanish crown is when they're trying to consolidate this idea of a Spanish nation, you know, with the publication of Nebrijas grammar in 1492 as well. And yeah, I mean, it seems like such a, a rich area to explore. Um, that's, that goes beyond what, what some of the, the other most recent scholarship has been working on, but is really mobilizing some of these ideas about, about, you know, what is nation? What is, what is identity? What is, what are some of these characteristics that people are really grappling with? Um, so as we move on to uh, the content of the book, I thought that maybe one piece of um, necessary knowledge for the the non hispanists and non iberianists might be a bit of background on on what is the Spanish Inquisition beyond sort of what's available to modern audiences right. in Monty Python. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the Inquisition had the central um, the su- the su- the Suprema or the central organizing body was in um, was in Spain, but they had other centers in the New World. So Mexico, um, which was called New Spain, Peru, um, um, also in Brazil, so and Cartagena de India. So there's these different centers in Colombia. There's different centers of the Inquisition. And the Inquisition, um, we think about it a lot um, in terms of trying to root out Jews and Muslims and um, and persecute them. And there was a definite component of that. Um, but there, the Inquisition was also there to – this was in the terms of what the inquisitor, inquisitors and the Catholic Church was trying to do um, to kind of correct the wrongs of the Spanish populace, of the Catholic believers. And um, so there also were trials um, for – people who behaved in ways that didn't conform to the Catholic social order. And when I think about it in my work, a lot of it is um, how did the Inquisition um, in in many ways, um, they ended up kind of teaching sometimes crypto-Jews about how to be Jewish because they had a list of different behaviors. Eating different, um, eating different foods, observing the Sabbath, fasting on certain days, keeping kosher or laws of food preparation. And so there was this kind of weird back and forth between prohibitions, but then also teaching people who didn't have access to um, Jewish beliefs or Jewish practice. They actually ended up teaching them about it too. So that kind of goes back and forth. So the Inquisition and how it functions in my work, the Carvajal women were brought up on Inquisition charges. They, they came up under two separate trials. In the first trial, and this is in New Spain, in the first trial they were all kind of separated because they were a part of this big group of Judaizers, um, of crypto-Jews. And um, when you're brought up to testify, they ask you to kind of rat out everybody else in your community. And you may not do it in the beginning, but eventually you do. And so there's this huge um, web and network of other people. Um, they were all kind of slapped on the wrist, separated, but um, eventually went back to practicing um, crypto Judaism and were brought up on a second trial and ultimately um, perished and were put to death in an alto de fe, um, which is the big public execution. And so these alto de fe's are really part of early modern society where they're trying to say, okay, for really bad wrongdoers who don't repent, we're going to do this public um, exercise that shows the populace, this is how you should not behave. And if you do, this is the punishment. Um, and so, um, and so that's that's their sad end. Um, so yeah, when I was working through these documents, when I was thinking about it purely academically, you know, you can get through it. But if you think about it, these are people who, you know, were kept in the jail cells for so many months and um, they what that looks like. So yeah, it's heartbreaking. Um, speaking of public spectacle and, and kind of performance. Um, I wonder if you could, um, 
use an explanation of the auto sacramental to tell us a bit about the argument that you lay out in the chapter you've entitled Esther in Iberia and constructing a Catholic nation upon the Judeo-Christian model? Sure. Yeah. So um, something that you had said earlier, actually, I'm um, just about these two different ways of looking at these Esther texts, I think really resonates with that question. Um um, in that that chapter, we're talking about, and when I think when the conclusion of looking at all of these, the texts about Esther from a Christian perspective is that they're upholding notions of obedience to a really central authoritative power, which is the Catholic kings, and then the other the Catholic royals being Isabel and Ferdinand, and then later the other Catholic um, empires, um, emperors. Um, and kings. And so these auto sacramentales are one act plays that often were performed and don't have I couldn't find specific information if these when these were performed or where, but generally auto sacramentales are performed in front of as part of big important celebrations. They're um plays that are performed for uh, the masses, so many who could have been illiterate, and we're trying intending to teach um, norms and values to these people. And so when they were, and I, so my question was, what is Esther? How is celebrating a Jewish heroine going to help the Catholic nation? Um, what I found were they, the aspects that were celebrated were ideas of obedience, um, and thinking about that gendered lens, female virtue, um, female, female obedience also within that schema and upholding notions of um, of femininity that were really prevalent in that time period that kind of circumscribed women within set boundaries and um, and I and so those and that idea of that public spectacle was centrally important to those types of texts and so it was kind of the counter um, well that uh, an, an an important counterpoint to texts written by crypto Jews about their experiences with Esther. That's fascinating. So, I mean, it seems like there's this aspect of, you know, mobilizing Esther as this idealized woman that, that, I don't know, it's a very sort of post Foucaultian idea of it. It sort of undermines itself in a way, right? But like, like on the one hand, you have Esther being mobilized as as the ideal of, of feminine virtue, but then if you consider all of the other features that you're going to bring out in the rest of the book, you know, isn't it ironic that they're using Esther as this amazing virtuous Christian Christian woman who, in fact, is this kind of subversive figure that stands up for her community's rights and yeah, and I think that's the ambiguous part of the book of Esther that lends itself to this, um, to this period, because I mean, before actually really delving into this project, I had, I mean, when I was a kid, I dressed up as queen Esther for Purim, but I dressed up as queen Esther because she was the beautiful queen. And there's not that many Jewish Queens that are celebrated. Um, but I always kind of thought, well, she won a beauty contest she paraded herself naked. Um, she's not a heroine for women. She's not this exceptional character figure. But I think she does straddle multiple identities, and she can be interpreted in different ways. And to some, certain people, she is not a heroine. And to certain people, she's just kind of upholding feminine notions of idealized beauty that are not subversive. But um, that's what's interesting to me about these different retellings because they do shed different light on her and um, and she on the period, I think. So could you um, tell, so moving on from the spectacle of auto sacramentales to thinking about another um, form of public spectacle that was also being performed in front of massive numbers of people. And here I'm thinking about Lope de Vega as one of the most popular playwrights of, of early modern Spain. Um, in chapter three, you move from discussing his play, La Hermosa Ester, to discussing another set of texts written by a converso 
who, as you had mentioned previously, at some point would be investigated and punished by the Spanish Inquisition. So I thought maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about, about Lope and about his play, and then explain, as you do in the chapter, the relationship of his work to that of the lesser-known um, Converso discussion of Esther. Sure, yeah. Um, so Lope de Vega is this incredibly prolific, important playwright in... Um, in early modern Spain, and he puts on the stage La Hermosa Esther, and it is performed on the stage. Um, the idea of spectacle is, is supremely important because for, um, for the Spanish early modern theater, this was a mass way of communicating with the people. And there was these huge corrales, which are um, the places where people would sit and stand and watch and there's many theorists who've talked about how it's this place that brings the upper and lower classes together to um, to partake in um, in diversion, but also things that teach them about their society. Um, and so Lope de Vega's play was performed on the stage, and it stands to reason that um, Godinez, they lived in similar places would have seen this play on the stage and Lope de Vega's play was written before um, Godinez's. Um, and Lope de Vega, what we see in his play, in his version of La Hermosa Estera, these notions of beauty being upheld. Um, he does create a genealogy of women that he dedicates this play to. So I find that important and intriguing. Like this is, it's a male playwright, but it's written about a woman for women. Um, and so there is this kind of um, like feminine criticism that's going on. Um, a lot of the play up, upholds feminine virtues. Esther is a beautiful figure. Um, and it kind of ma maintains that narrative of obedience to the nation state. Um, but it also celebrates a female figure, which is which does stand out in that period. Godinez, um, his two works, and they're written on either side of his Inquisition trial. Um, it's kind of, the second is really a rewriting of the first. Um, they're two totally different texts. The first one is titled um, La Renaster. The second is Amani Mardocchio, so Haman and Mordechai. So the um, just from the titles, there he's taking away this centrally important female figure, and that is shown throughout the text. And instead, he focuses on these two masculine figures. And there's a whole series of um, objects that he works through. In the first, he, he um, in the first, it's it celebrates this Jewish figure and different aspects of her Judaism. Um, and quite blatantly in the second text in Amani Mardocchio, um, it's a Christianized version. And we see celebrations of the Virgin Mary in place of Esther. Um, and so it kind of, to me, what it said was he was instructed, Godinez was instructed in the correct Catholic way at the time um, of how to Christianize his work. Godinez was also a priest. So there is something um, which is pretty common for conversos in general. Um, converso families, in order to show that they were obedient to the re regime and were good Christians, they would encourage a member of their family to join the priesthood. And so Godinez has this interesting background. A couple of his family members were also brought up on Inquisition charges, some were exiled from Spain and punished in other ways. So there are all of these tensions in the, bio in the biography of this figure that play out in his texts as well. That's really fascinating. Do you see um, the Godinez, the, the second work, as converging to the more sort of hegemonic text of, Lo of Lope, or is he creating an entirely different sort of image of, of, of Esther? I think it becomes more of the, the hegemonic order mandates of the society, more alongside the autos sacramentales. Um, in terms of, in some ways, the first text that Godinez writes, La Renester, dialogues with Lopez's text, um, La Hermosa Esther, because he is celebrating and um, upholding this female figure and her virtues above all else. Um, so, um, 
but it is it it is interesting to me that there's these three plays written almost around the same time period um by um a really well-known playwright and then a lesser known but about this um centrally this this figure so then in the in the second half of the book you kind of expand beyond spain um to the sephardic diaspora um and in the first of these, which you look at in chapter four, you discuss this instead of a dramatic celebration of Esther, you're now talking about poetic celebrations um, written by Joao Pito Delgado, a converso Jew from Portugal, who you say winds up connecting with the Nassau Portuguesa in, in Amsterdam and then ends up in France. Um, so I thought, uh, again, just to get a little bit of background history, how do we end up with Sephardic Jews in Amsterdam? Um, why is Pinto Delgado's kind of itinerary through these different European spaces important? Um, why are there conversos in Portugal at this, at this time that he's writing? Yeah. Um, so the borders between Spain and Portugal at this time were, um, pretty fluid. There was an inquisition established first in Spain, then later in Portugal, and there was uh, some decrees that allowed the converso that allowed Portuguese conversos to kind of return to Spain. So there was this free movement going back and forth. Um, Joao Pinto Delgado's family was originally from Spain, moved to Portugal, and they were converso Jews. And as, as we talked about earlier, he kind of was separated from these normative ways of practicing Judaism because we're talking about you know, a hundred plus years after the expulsion of the Jews from Iberia. Um, and although the Inquisition happened slightly later in Portugal, we're still um, a ways away. Um, so um, given the chance, there were um, many Portuguese conversos who moved outside of Iberia and a big community was founded in Amsterdam. Um, and they kind of were known as the Nassau Portuguesa um, because it was such a critical mass. Some ended up returning because they it didn't work for them, or they and they weren't readily accepted within the normative orthodoxy of Amsterdam at that time. But um, um, Pinto Delgado ended up staying there for a number of years and then continued on to, um, to France where he, um, lived as an important Jewish member of that community. Um, and so the, I think the story of the, the Portuguese Nassau is really interesting because it really is a dynamic one that moves and they ended up in, um, Amsterdam was a huge, um, had a huge maritime trade as did Portugal. And so they ended up moving, um, to far flung places. Um, officially conversos weren't supposed to leave the peninsula and they were mandated not to, but there were ways of getting fake records or if you had a connection that allowed you to leave or if you had enough money together and somehow made your way out. But this was a really dynamic mobile community, um, which I find particularly interesting. Yeah. And so, so um, now maybe you could tell me about how, so how is Pinto Delgado kind of representative of this community and what does his representation of Esther tell us about how his community saw itself, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the Sephardic Jewish diaspora? Um, and more broadly, how is it different? How is it similar from other representations of Esther that you've talked about already? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, um, to move back for one moment in... Um, um, in Godinez's text, we, we Godinez is one of the only converso that's, that I found that has been able to write about Esther. And, and we can see the revisions that have happened because of where he was living and what those limitations are. Um, Pinto Delgado is now, in, in a sense, free to write about whatever he wants. He's not within Iberia. He's not within the borders of the peninsula. And he's not within the reach of the Inquisition. And so um, he is really able to express 
any ideas of longing of missing a homeland. And that's what we see in his long poem about um, Esther. We see the maritime images, the sea features prominently, and this idea of missing home and missing a homeland. And when we talked earlier about this dual notion of homeland for Sephardic Jews being um, Spain and and Israel, or uh, we have this centrally important piece, which is missing home and thinking about home um, and this kind of center of Spain that emerges for for this author. Um, and I think and and then this like this celebratory way that he's able to relate um, about Esther and her being this Jewish heroine and queen and really being oh he's really the the only figure that's really openly able to express all of these ideas without fear of retaliation or retribution and I think it's a really central part of his identity as a Sephardic. Jew as a member of the Nassau Portuguesa, as somebody who's living in the diaspora because Esther becomes queen of the conversos in the diaspora. And so it is really important to move outside of those boundaries and follow her to these different places that she's kind of saying to people, look, I'm a heroine. Well, she's not saying I'm a heroine, but she's, they see in her this figure that resists adversity and flourishes. And I think that comes out in his poem that we can survive and we can move on and we can, um, we can be, and we can have, um, successful lives outside of, um, those previous limitations. And so that idea really comes out in this, in this work. It's really fascinating. Um, so speaking of Esther moving in this sort of, global uh environment you finish with with texts that we've uh that you've brought up a couple of times now um this time produced by as you've said crypto jewish women in the diaspora in new spain um how how was crypto judaism in the new world fundamentally different than than crypto Judaism in in Europe or was it um um fundamentally I don't think it was so different um there was some there was less observation because if you lived in a very rural part of New Spain um there was just le- um the inquis the inquisitors were really located within urban centers, so within what is today Mexico City. Um, and so when the Carvajal family actually first began and they lived in kind of far-flung places, they weren't really as suspect. Um, and so in that way, there were some, there were some differences. Um, there was, but in terms of the lives that they led in these urban centers, which eventually um, led to their demise, um, crypto Judaism really manifested in in many in many parallel ways for women and men across um, the boundaries and the dates of when crypto Judaism flourished the most and when it declined um, I th- were fairly similar because these these are people who still although they weren't they were living thousands of miles away they still had contact um, with the old world um, so um um so um in terms of the the Carvajal family um they made it to the new world as a really family unit there was one brother who was left behind um who was a priest actually he became a priest and he stayed in the old world the rest of the family made it to the new world, even though they weren't supposed to, because their uncle was the governor of Nuevo León, and he was called um, Luis Luis de Carvajal, the El Viejo, the Elder, and he was the one who kind of was able to. Although he wasn't a crypto Jew, he maintained firmly that he wasn't. Um, although his wife was in the old world, um, he brought this family and allowed them to relocate. 
Um, do you do you have any sense of how did he sort of get around the restrictions on on conversos traveling outside of the Iberian Peninsula, or is that not part of the the archival record? Um, that is a good question. I don't know exactly how he ended up getting there and was able to, um, but I know that because of his connections and his importance, the rest of the Carvajal family did, um, and it. Um, they left kind of with the idea that it would protect them to be someplace further away from the Suprema and the centers of the Inquisition. And that kind of speaks to your question. And then um, it didn't quite pan out in that way uh, for them. And so then where does Esther come in for the, for the Carvajal sisters? So how does she come into that story? So as we, as I was mentioning before, as I theorized that, um, Crypto-Judaism is a matriarchal religion, and I'm not alone in uh, Miriam Bodium has an excellent um, work that talks about this, David Gray's board. And, um, but we, we think about um, crypto-Judaism being a matriarchal religion, and so these voices of these women and what they're saying, and they're the ones remembering the prayers and teaching them, it becomes this home-centered, home-based religion. And the women really use their bodies um, to maintain crypto to maintain their crypto-Jewish practices through things like fasting, um, some self-flagellation. Um, um, and with, within all of these trials that they kind of endure and put themselves through, they talk about Queen Esther as their Saint Esther. And she becomes like, really parallels those other figures of um, the Virgin Mary. Um, and she becomes their heroine and they talk about and they observe the fast of Queen Esther so within the story the biblical story of Queen Esther there's a fast and a feast um, and the feast is not something that they can do it's public they're remember they're living as public Christians and secret Jews private Jews they can't openly feast because they had servants there was lots of eyes watching them um, but they could observe the fast and so they observed really strict fast like three-day fasts in um, of for Queen Esther which started at from sunrise to sundown and that re really became a part of their bodily centric um, worship and they venerated Esther and they talk about her a lot and they say we do this in honor of um, Saint Esther or Queen Esther um, and they say prayers to her in their private letters they refer to her as Saint Esther um, and they you know they they venerate this heroine that flourished in adversity and this is the exact situation that they're living in so um, she becomes this patron patron saint of um, crypto Judaism, and it it also gives them a place. They can't. There's so much they can't control. But by invoking this figure, who is a really for other for other writers, as we've seen in the beginning, we talk about her beauty and her virtue as a woman. They take this in a different way, and it becomes a bodily female um, space that they're able to control. Um, through fasting, through um, different obediences um, that they invoke. And this is their doing in uh, um, thinking through Esther as a figure that they can pray to and that is their queen and they're the person that's um, anchoring their belief. That's fascinating. Um, it's almost this syncretic idea of, of a Judeo-Christian figure of, of, you know, a patron saint, which obviously isn't really a, a, a figure that tends to hap tends to emerge in Judaism. So that's, it's fascinating that that, that is the sort of image of Esther that, that comes out of your final chapter. Um, could you maybe just sum up what are some of your big conclusions from this project? Sure. Um, so one of the main, main things I think about is the idea of a Sephardic difference, and that speaks to the female figure, um, the Sephardic difference being located in the female body um, that is a figure that is global, um, that is a border transgressor. Um, she's 
um, I think of Esther as this early modern globetrotter and as a cultural chameleon. And that's something that you just touched on also, this kind of mixed figure that you can't totally separate one from the other. And that's something that the crypto Jews, you know, they living a public life as one, a private life as other, you can't totally divorce where one begins and the other ends. Um, the idea that another main conclusion is the idea that Sephardic identity exists beyond geographical borders. Um, and as we talked about, this, to the idea of contesting national boundaries is the only option for identity and thinking about identity in new ways. Um, and really an- just another way of um thinking of the 16th, the 15th and the 16th and 17th centuries and who are the models and the figures that stand out to different people. Um, I don't, Esther's not somebody that jumps to the top when we think about Iberia in the 16th and 17th centuries, but she's highly represented and she means a lot of things to different people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so wonderful to have such an in-depth study of of a woman that was so significant, because I feel like with the exception of Isabel la Católica, there really are so, you know, I've this, the early modern period is such a male-dominated world um, that it's fascinating to hear, hear such a, a rich description of a woman that signified so widely and, and so globally and not just on the Iberian Peninsula. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time today, um, but before I let you go, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what you're working on now. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I recently was in Sevilla on, on sabbatical, and I was looking at um, the payments to wet nurses from the 17th century um, for the Casa Cuna, which is basically an orphanage. And so what I'm focusing right now on is practices of breastfeeding and wet nursing, in that time period and looking at um, notions of ethnic and religious difference and also um, just um, ideas like the breast is best, um, how that manifested in early modern Spain and who were the right and who were the wrong people. There is to, to nurse these children. There's tons of treatises about um, what women should and shouldn't do, and many of them are male authored. And so I am, um, th- and it's not that different than today. So I'm thinking about, thinking about, um, thinking about all of those ideas currently. That's really interesting. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, it was great to get to catch up with you and hear a little bit more about your work. Um, and then I hope to get to talk to you soon. You as well. Thank you so much.